Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Jim Lee. Jim is a financial advisor with over 30 years experience. He's also the founder of Stratfi, which is a boutique investment advisor firm that focuses on what happens next. Jim holds a BA in economics from the College of William and Mary and an MS in studies of the future from the University of Houston, Clear Lake. He is a member of our Association of Professional Futurists and has just published Foresight Investing, which explains the investment opportunities in the Internet of Things, augmented reality, cryptocurrencies, longevity science, and new sources of energy. Welcome to FuturePod, Jim. Okay, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jim, question one for our guest is to tell their, is to tell their story. So what is the Jim Lee story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Yeah, well, if you look at my background, my father was a career physicist uh, with DuPont, and he invented all sorts of things between barcode scanners and digital x-rays and uh, optical switches. So he had a finance background. My mother, meanwhile, her family spent 100 years with Chase Manhattan Bank. Uh, she has more of a finance background. And you put the two together, and you know I'm kind of like the Frankenstein of finance at this point. <laughs> running experiments in my basement, hoping not to blow anything up. And uh, we always talk science and money. My niche is really as what I would refer to as a financial futurist. I'm trying to figure out what happens next. As a master's student, and you would obviously talk this through with Peter, the future, of course, is unknowable. So there is both this, you know, there is this paradox that we want to know what the future is going to be as it, right. because we can cash in on it. But then if we believe the future is open and open to our influence, then we cannot know what is going to happen. I think it's somewhere in between. It is, it's, it's not completely unknowable, but it is also not completely fixed either. And that's what makes it so tricky, particularly when you apply it to the investment world, where the rules keep changing from one year to the next. It makes it interesting for me because it's even less predictable than a lot of the trends that I write about in my book. Well, I suppose the rules are always there to be, to some extent, circumvented by the next clever person, aren't they? Yeah. And, and what I do is I look for rhythms and patterns and cycles, because if you understand the, the rhythms of things, sometimes you have an idea of what happens next. So given your background, I mean, science and money, yeah, I can see that, but that doesn't lead naturally to studying futures at Houston Clear Lake. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we had a brief conversation before the show, Peter, and we both found out we have very, very similar backgrounds, um, undergraduate degrees in economics, followed by graduate work in, in finance. And I was working for a uh, family office for the DuPont family, and I was probably around 30 years of age. and It was time to you know, take the next step in my ongoing education. And I went to a reunion, a class reunion for William and Mary, and I ran into a colleague of ours, Christian Cruz. Ah, Christian. We were standing for a group photo, class of 1991, and I asked Christian, what do you do? He said, I'm a futurist. And I thought, 
How cool is that? <laughs> I want to do that. You know, I could be a futurist or I could get an MBA. There was no competition whatsoever. Right. Yeah, Christian was pretty cool. Still is. <laughs> <laughs> so then what? So, you know, you were working in an office, but you then decided to go and study future. That seemed natural? Well, it's about, it's about finding the big opportunities and looking over the next 10 or 20 years and seeing what transformations, what transformative technologies or social movements are on the horizon. If I look back at some of my more successful speculations, at the time that I made the investment, it was an ideas that seemed a little crazy at the time. Mm. You know, it was a little edgy. Uh, you know, example of that when I was looking at investing in Canadian marijuana companies, like back in 2015, 2016, because uh, they weren't even trading in the US. Mm. You know, there's no way of accessing that in the US market. You know, going into cryptocurrency not too much after that, you know, that's still a largely unregulated industry. Yeah. And f from what I can see is, you know, the views better from the edge. You're more likely to have exceptional gains, but also you know, exceptional risk, to be honest. If you get into things before they appear perfectly reasonable. Mm. You just used a word that is dear to my heart. And it's one that I don't think we use a lot in our community conversation and this this notion of speculation as a futures strategy Can you kind of talk about what speculation is for you and how we use speculation sure so for, for me it's a matter of looking forward to see what the the mega trends are what the big opportunities are and to see how those trends intersect with each other and to see what the implications of those trends are. So it's very much a forward-looking approach, knowing, of course, that the crystal ball is going to be a little foggy at times. It's still a, a worthwhile pursuit. And for me, it's looking forward, but also being prepared to take a position rather than just yeah. continue to look. Because to me, continuing to look is not speculation, is it? as I understand it. Speculation is the point where you actually put your skin in the game. You do. You do. And I've always felt that being an investment manager keeps me honest as a futurist mm. because there's a way to keep score. And, and there's a, a great temptation when you work in foresight to come up with four scenarios and one of them's right. And then you say, hey, I got it. Yeah. When you're perfectly hedged from the beginning. Okay. And that's, that's kind of cheating. You know, if, if you're in the forecasting business, you sort of have to say, this is where I think things are going. Uh, Philip Tetlock, actually, who's a, a researcher of people who look at political pro prognostications, and he's the person who penned the phrase super forecasters. But one of the attributes of super forecasters is actually keeping score, actually putting your, putting your prognostications out to the public or a select group of people to actually hold yourself to account. That's correct. And, and he uh, he's responsible for, I believe, the Good Judgment Project, yes, which is located out of the University of Pennsylvania. And what I've found is that a lot of futurists tend to be jack of all trades. They're able to carry multiple perspectives 
They tend to be very fluid. And that's uh, the conclusion that Philip Teclock mm. reaches as well, is they're more a fox yep. than a porcupine. They don't do any one thing super well, mm. but they're pretty quick on their feet. Yeah. And also prepared to change their mind, which, of course, is the essence of because you're going to be made an ass, aren't you, with the future? It is going to do something to you that you didn't expect. Well, well I, I tell people that there are a few occupational hazards of being a futurist, and that is that any statement made about the future will, in hindsight, appear to be obvious. It may appear to be wrong, or worse yet, it may appear to be obviously wrong, hmm. Okay. So if you look at my book that I wrote in 2011, right after the financial crisis, it looks pretty obvious. Hmm. So I think that's about as much as I could hope for. (laughs) Yeah, I used to always say that at Swinburne, we didn't teach a master's of strategic hindsight because most people had pretty good hindsight. Yeah, yeah, you you don't pay extra for that. I think I asked you this question before and I'm going to ask you now. Is it, I mean, are futures thinkers naturally good financial investors? Yeah. So so the way that I look at this is that if you want to be in the right place at the right time, it's helpful to show up a little bit early. Hmm. Okay. And and futurists are the first to know about a lot of things. And that's one of the reasons why I like hanging around with the APF crowd is I get all of these interesting oddball scan hits that I just have never heard of before. And they're just a fun group of people. The, the, The problem is is if you show up too early and you're the first one at the party and there's no one to talk to, that's no fun either, Hmm. okay? The risks of being a futurist is you can be five or 10 years ahead of time. And if you're an investor, that's not going to help your portfolio. You you kind of need to show up at the right time and you need to be sure that the trends and the the investments that you want to make are moving in the right direction or at least have potential to move in the right direction in the fairly near future. Because Nicholas Taleb has a term that he uses when he in his books with Black Swan and Anti-Fragile, this notion of taking the long bet, the notion of being prepared to hold a position for a period of time, almost waiting for the leverage opportunity to emerge. Now, that, that of course, is that takes courage and also you know, being, being actually prepared to be wrong for long periods of time as opposed to a lot of what is financially people say in finance is take your losses and 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 get out of positions that aren't working. Where do you stand on that dichotomy? Yeah, so in my book uh, on foresight investing, I, I take a look at two different approaches. One is trading and the other is investing, okay? And trading is about looking at long-term trends, but also keeping in mind what's working now. And you're looking at a much shorter holding period mm-hmm. and a much smaller tolerance for losses. And with investing, yeah, you're going to be taking a longer view and you're going to be holding a stock for a little bit longer and willing to tolerate a down quarter or two or maybe even a down year. So uh, when you invest, you need to have an understanding of your time frame mm-hmm. and your tolerance. go to the second question because I think we're kind of edging up to it. 
I ask the guests to talk and explain to the listeners, and yeah, most of the listeners of Future Pod are what you would probably call futures literate. They may well have, they could be actively practicing futurists, they could be proto becoming futurists, or just people who are, who are interested in the idea about the future. And I ask each of the guests to talk and explain the use of a particular framework or approach or philosophy that is central to how they do their work. Mm hmm. So what do you want to talk about and explain to people about how you approach, take your stance about the future? Yeah, sure. So so if you look at the different types of futures that we study in the field, okay, you have possible futures, which are things that could happen. You have preferred futures, which are the things that you want to happen. And then you have probable futures, which are the things that you think are going to happen. Okay. My work in investments, I'm generally going to be looking at probable futures while hedging uh, on some of those possible futures, some of those wild cards. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I'm going to be interested in where things are going. And uh, the tools that I use for that, uh, one is trends. The second is cycles. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Trends tend to be a little bit more of a straight line projection, straight line for, forecast. It's where we think things are going. Uh, you don't fight the trend, okay? And the trend is your friend until it ends or it ends, okay? No, it, it is until it isn't. Yeah. And cycles tell you when trends bend and when they end. So if you combine trends and cycles, you almost have this yin and yang type of thing where you have cycles within trends that are within larger cycles. And that's the way that it should be. So I use both of those. So for you, what is called the counter trend is basically the action of the cycle kicking in whichever cycle it is. That as the cycle is turning, the counter trend yeah. starts to get stronger, the dominant trend starts to get weaker and possibly even flips. Yeah, and you can bet on counter trends. I mean, for every trend, there is a counter trend, mm. and it might not necessarily be as strong, but it's tradable. Mm. In terms of, again, I'm going to bring you back to our our professional colleagues. Do you think that this notion of the trend and the cycle and the counter trend and the turnings, do you think those are well understood and well practiced by our colleagues? I think that there's a lot of opportunity there for additional research. You use the term turnings, which is used more specifically towards the book, uh, The Fourth Turning by Howe and Strauss, hmm. which is, I would say, the most popular or the most recognized long-term social cycle right now in, in the futures business. I have a, a take on that that I use called the values and expression cycle, which is a 40-year cycle versus an 80-year cycle which for me has been a very useful forecasting framework, which tells me how one decade will be different from the next. I use that as the framework for my last book, and it's been spot on. It's been great. <laughs> it's interesting when theories like fourth turnings and so forth, because of course they are heuristics. We use them and we look through them. We see the evidence that supports them. But that, of course, is the narrative fallacy of the way our brains operate. Yeah, you're looking for excuses for something to work. Because <laughs> there is a risk in that, that you suddenly be believe the heuristic rather than understand you're looking through a heuristic to understand. How do you kind of avoid that? One of the risks of 
that methodology, the fourth turning methodology, is they talk about the fourth turning like this big, you know, change that will be just utterly earth shattering. But they never tell you exactly when that's going to happen. They give you kind of like a 20 year time frame, which a lot of careers don't last 20 years. Mm. And you need to be a little bit more specific in order to be useful, in order to take a position. Uh, and, and that's what I do by looking at some of the shorter term cycles, too. I'm going to suggest that within our discipline, particularly people who look at a world that's possibly behaving in a way that doesn't look like it's paying attention to the long-term future, that one of the fundamental notions in finance and, and economics is this notion of discounting the future in the sense that as we value cash flows or we, or we put values on things, we tend to put lesser value on things that are further and further into the future. Yes. Almost as if finance and and economics by its nature discounts the future or prefers present over future. And if it's a choice between what makes sense now versus what makes sense then, we're better off sticking with the Mm -hmm. now. Do you actually accept that? So this gets really interesting, Peter, because in finance, we use something called the discount rate, Mm. which tells you to the extent that you are willing to wait for a future outcome, okay? So a low discount rate enables future revenues, future opportunities to have much more value and give you much more patience than a high discount rate, which says we need our money now, okay? (laughs) And um, what happens with higher inflation, you have potentially higher interest rates leading to higher discount rates, which is why we had such a big sell-off in the tech stocks between February and April of this year with a lot of the tech darlings off 30 to 40% because people were changing their patience for the future. What happens if we take that concept of the discount rate, but we move it out of the quite confined facts of finance and we move it into more the kind of social political space, and I'm thinking of something like valuing action on climate. Yeah. I'm in a country where I've got a current government that basically says we make money out of selling coal. Why why would we stop selling coal? Right. And of course, many people arguing, what the hell are you doing? Don't you see what's coming? Don't you see what this is contributing to? And I see the same thing, of course, you, you certainly had the same thing in America when Trump was there versus you know Biden coming in and trying to pivot to the different energy stocks. But the notion of applying a discount rate, mm-hmm. can you bring that finance concept over and possibly apply it in a kind of circumstance like, for example, you know, coal or energy or climate change policy and that kind of thing? So, so the discount rate is a very quantitative factor that you can use in modeling, as you know. But it also equates to another term, which I, I think translates better in a political sense, and that is confidence, okay? And that if you have confidence, you will have a greater aptitude for patience mm-hmm. and a greater interest in some of these longer-term projects, such as... Uh, climate, you know, remediation or converting to more sustainable technologies relative to someone who's not confident, relative to someone who's feeling insecure. About their job and that kind of thing. Correct. So for example, a person who's losing their job is applying a high discount rate. Correct. Because they're saying, no, I, no, if you close the industry, I lose my house, I lose my livelihood. Whereas someone else is 
is applying a much lower discount rate because they actually see that either they can adjust to it, that they haven't got any pressing needs in the short term. Spoken like a true economist. Yes, absolutely. I want to go to the third question. I'm going to ask Jim Lee to put down Jim Lee, founder of Stratfy, and I want to talk to Jim Lee, human being on planet Earth. The futures that are emerging around you that you're paying attention to, that you're sensitive to, the futures that get your attention and get you thinking, um, you know, what are they? You know, what are the things that both excite and possibly even trouble you or, or give you concern? Yeah, so when I look at the mega trends of, of the next decade or so, we're looking at aging demographics and potentially anti-aging therapies coming on the horizon. We're looking at tiny tech, which is looking at both bioscience and smart materials. We're looking at digitization, which has been a trend for a while. We're looking at automation, which is AI and also robotics and urbanization. Uh, which, which when I was writing my book, I thought was just a slam dunk. You know, we've been urbanizing for 12,000 years, then COVID hits and people are fleeing the cities. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, do I have to rewrite this whole chapter or, or not? So, you know, that's going to happen too. So with regards to the urbanization, I kind of wonder how quickly we will recover emotionally and socially from mm-hmm. the lockdown. You know, if we'll be more distanced in our relationships and our work relationships or not, or if cities will be able to bring people back with a degree of confidence. Uh, So I wonder about that. With that list of things you mentioned, and certainly I'm going to suggest in America, you've got some quite fundamental social equity issues in terms of people's ability to access a whole range of services like health, education, that kind of thing. Do you see that while those things are going to emerge and you know and we are going to see you know life extension and and you know super technology that the access to that is likely to be very very unequal according to where people are in terms of their ability to to basically access it and get the benefit and could we be actually further stratifying and further creating gaps in social equity that seems to be the case having lived in the country and having lived in the city there appears to be more opportunities for work and for education and for opportunities in urban environments versus the rural environments. And I think that tilts things back in the favor of of the cities going forward. Hmm. But we will find out. I think the biggest defining characteristics of cities that were greatly handicapped by COVID versus the ones that are thriving, are whether or not they had subway systems or not, whether they had centralized transportation that packed people in small cars underground in close quarters, there was definitely a pushback towards that. And, and that's why you saw one of the reasons why you would see you know people moving out of Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, because there was just a lack of comfort for a while. Yeah. Before COVID, there was a tremendous push to get people out of cars onto public transport systems because of the energy, traffic implications, pollution implications. And I would imagine there's been a strong pivot back to people seeking private travel arrangements and 
withdrawing from public transport systems. And with, uh, with autonomous cars and the ability to access transportation on demand, I think a lot of these urban transportation systems that have been built over the last hundred years are going to come under a lot of pressure. I, I mm. think that people are going to choose not to use those. The big one, of course, that happened here, and I'm sure it happened in the States, that when people stopped traveling to work and when people and when kids stopped going to school because they started to do home education, a lot of the forecasts for travel needs, road infrastructure, public transport infrastructure to that matter, started to look pretty silly. And the question is, is education next mm. with, with people learning remotely on their own schedule for a fraction of what it costs for a four-year university. I mean, they've kind of dodged the bullet. Yeah. But between distance learning and shrinking demographics, now that the millennials have kind of grown up and you have a much smaller generation behind them, you know, the children of the, the Gen Xers, I think you're going to have a lot of financial pressure coming to play for larger universities. Yeah. The one we don't know at this stage, it's still a sleeper trend, is the mental health issues of lockdown, particularly on the younger people, particularly in the education and school years. Big. There's you know, very, very early signs that the lockdowns had seemed to have a more dramatic health effect, mental health effect on younger people than it did actually on older people. Yeah. So I don't know if you know uh, Richard Yonke or not. Mm. I read a book called The Heart of the Machine, which looks at... AI and chatbots and the, the conversations that you can have with your Amazon Alexa, your, your Google Home, as a way of kind of making mental health available to the masses, cheaply and to the masses. And when Apple was looking at um, people's responses to their inquiries, a lot of them were asking questions like, how do I feel better? I'm depressed. What do I do? And there's a huge need to extend that and um, put people in a better place. Mm, interesting. Push on to fourth question, the communication question. I get, I get the sneaking suspicion that you're pretty good at this one. Um, how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what you do? Yeah. Well, I, I have a niche uh, for me. You know, I, I tell people that I run a boutique investment advisory firm focused on what happens next. And, and that covers the bases. Um, when I started, Peter, you know, I would tell people that I'm a futurist. I thought that would be the conversation opener. You know, I just thought that would be just fascinating. And people usually look a little perplexed when I told them that. So I needed to tell them a little bit more about how I apply it. And? <laughs> and I apply it to the investment process, you know, try to figure out where things are going so that I can position my clients to benefit from those trends. It seems to me interesting that people who are initially perplexed by the notion of being a person who thinks about the future, thinks about what's coming, yeah, certainly I've encountered that, that people look at you as if, you know, why do you do that? And then when you put it within the explanation of finance, people sort of, it suddenly makes sense. Is actually finance one of those natural places for people to actually embrace foresight in everyday life? 
oh, I, I believe that it is. And, and in fact, one of the fastest growing investment firms run by a woman by Kathy Woods is her name, runs a group called ARK Invest, which builds thematic trend-based funds that people can invest in. And she has been crushing it for the last few years. For me, investments is a way of showing that there's value in foresight, in quantifying it in real terms for everyone. So yeah, I think it's a natural fit. Let's talk about the book, Foresight Investing, Mm -hmm. just published. Yeah. What do you want to tell the, the listeners about the book, why they might be interested in having a look at it? Yeah, well, well, this was my COVID project. <laughs> I think there are going to be a lot of books coming out over the next few months. <laughs> it was, you know, write the book or go to work, you know, one or the other. And this is the investment book that I always wanted for, for myself because it really ties it all together. If you look at my background and kind of my journey, I started out writing software for stock analysis back when I was a teenager, something called technical analysis. Mm-hmm. which would follow the price action of, of stocks, look at the charts, look at trends, see what's trending, what's not trending. And that's kind of where I started with all of this. Then I became uh, something called a CFA, which is a chartered financial analyst, which is all about looking at the numbers hmm. and figuring out profitability, different types of ratios, looking at valuation, which we talked about a little bit earlier today. And then after that, I, I went to get my degree as a futurist. And what I found out is that different strategies work for different time frames. And being a futurist gives you the long-term perspective. Being a market technician and looking at the day-to-day price action helps you fine-tune when you get in and when you get out. Hmm. It's very complementary, very interdisciplinary. I mean, finance is a weird animal in the sense of what it attracts. It attracts, I mean, genuine good thinkers. You get the quants who do the modeling. You get the chartists who believe that everything can be fitted to a graph line. You get the trend spotters, trend watchers. And then you get that bizarre behavior about GameStop. Yeah. Which is more about take on the big elephant and take them down. Yeah. You know, I'm not quite sure whether the game uh, GameStop and Robin Hood phenomenon is good from the perspective of does it build trust in the markets? I would say mm. not. Mm. Um, what it does do more than anything else is prove that markets can be manipulated, this time not only by institutions and hedge funds, but by hordes of small investors as well. Yeah. You know? and, and I'm just seeing some mistakes made that are very um, superficial that have significant consequences. So, for example, people have wanted to buy the cryptocurrency Ethereum. Uh, the, the ticker symbol on that, so to speak, is ETH. But when you buy ETH in your brokerage account, you buy shares of a furniture maker called Ethan Allen. They've done really well because people were buying ETH. And it's almost easy to overthink this sometimes. I mean, you know, depending upon what Elon Musk might write about, you know, Bitcoin or Dogecoin can have very significant impacts within seconds. And people aren't obviously thinking for the long term. And what makes investing interesting is you're always going to disagree with someone Hmm. for every 
buyer, there's a seller. And people also have different time frames too. Some people are expecting to hold things for seconds. Other people are expecting to hold it for years. And this all clashes in, in the markets. It does my head in when I see zero interest rates being, you know, sitting around the mm-hmm. world and, and governments mm-hmm. pumping money as fast as they can. And I have and I have people telling me about modern monetary theory and the world's different this time. And I've heard that so many times that, you know, the world's different this time until it's proven that it's not. Oh, there is a great book on that called This Time is Different. Have you read that? Yeah, I have. I'm not convinced it is different. <laughs> well, they weren't convinced either. You see, that's the thing. It's made it a great book. Yeah, 0% interest rates. Who knew this would be a thing? What I'm looking at right now, which I find fascinating, is this whole decentralized finance phenomenon. Mm. And what happens when people no longer use fiat currencies, meaning the currencies issued by their governments, and choose to offer currencies that didn't exist 10 years ago? And will those decentralized currencies be embraced or will they be rejected. And there's no fixed answer to that yet. Every country is taking a different approach. I know in the US, we've been very slow to regulate it. And I think it was El Salvador, they decided to make it a, uh, a national currency, or at least something that people were required to accept Bitcoin. Japan, it's legal. I think in Turkey, it's illegal. China's shutting down Bitcoin miners. There's no consistent response to this from what I can see. I wonder if, again, for people whose interest is not finance per se, but for people whose business is to actually think about disruption, whether finance is an area that moves quickest, moves earliest, and possibly foreshadows bigger issues down the pipe. Yeah, I I would be inclined to agree with that statement. Because it's easier to um, make a trade and to change your perspective fairly rapidly. There's, there's a framework known as pace layer thinking that says that different things move at different rates. Okay. And uh, I think this one came out by I'm trying to remember Stuart Brand of the Long Now Foundation. And he basically says fashion moves, you know, sort of on a weekly, almost a monthly basis. Commerce moves within one to three years, then it's infrastructure, governance, and then culture, and then nature. And in finance, it it Mm. moves in nanoseconds at times. It certainly does with flash trading and the uh, handing over uh, financial transactions to computer servers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it it does. And um, there's, there's a lot of that, although that's completely automated and it's displaced a lot of financial analysts. Because finance has gone quant over the last 20 years. It's a different game. Like basketball. Yeah, or baseball. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. It's been good to talk futures and talk economics and talk finance. You bet. I don't get to do it often, so thank you for that opportunity. <laughs> On behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out to have a chat and good luck with the book. Of course. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website.
Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.